Hey y'all. Hey. Welcome back to episode seven. Seven. Oh my gosh. I know. It's hard to believe that we started doing this seven weeks ago. I know. It's crazy, but really cool. Yeah. I've really enjoyed talking about murder at least once a week with you. <laughs> Usually more, but you know, on the record. For sure. At least once a week. Yeah. Um, so this week is my turn to tell a story. I'm Scotty. And I'm Melissa. And we are Gals and Gore. We're here to rattle your cages, tell you some creepy stuff. Mm-hmm. So get pretty. Yeah, especially for today's murder. It's so disturbing in a lot of different ways, but... I don't know. You're just going to have to tell me what you oh think my God. about it. I what? feel like we're on like a, in a competition to see like who can find the most <laughs> disturbing shit because. <laughs> well, I will say that I found another story this week and I was going to do it. And while I was looking up all the stuff about it, it just wasn't up to par. It wasn't as exciting as this one. So hmm. okay. I changed tack mid course and I really hope you appreciate it. I always appreciate it, gal. Always. Thanks. Thanks. Live All right. What you got for me, girl? Okay. So, I want you to get ready, gal, because today we're going back to middle school. Ooh. Okay. Mm-hmm. All the drama. So. God, I fucking hated middle school, but okay. I was going to say, I hope you're ready to remember some of the best times of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> aka the worst I remember myself in middle school I feel like I had some like rainbow suspenders and Doc Martens and oh yeah and potato shoes do you remember those potato shoes well a lot of the cool girls had potato shoes oh and I don't I wasn't cool me neither but I had some but I was strutting around with those potato shoes girl I don't think I got my potato shoes until I was in high school it's like a rite of passage yeah, I did eventually get some, though, and I'm not going to lie. I still think they're kind of cute. Mm, not me. They definitely look like potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> Better that than Crocs. Oh, yeah. I remember Shay, my sister, had a pair of furry Crocs, Crocs with the fur. Oh, no, honey. I'll never let her live it down. Oh, Shay. Yeah. Uh, and she's so cute and fashionable. I know. Crocs with the fur. Onward. Let's, let's go back to middle school. I'm ready. Anyway, speaking of murder, speaking of Crocs with fur and murder, <laughs> back to middle school. Okay, so first of all, let's talk about the wins and the wares. Let me set the stage for you. Okay. So it's 1991 Ooh. in Madison, Indiana. Okay. So kind of recent, as in like, that's the year I was born, but it doesn't really feel like super recent, so. I was yeah. still in diapers, but okay. Yeah. Ready. You were very newly born. Yeah. Well, like a year. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> so, it's 1991, and this is the story of sweet Shonda Scherer. Okay. And she was born in... Pineville, Kentucky, on June 6, 1979, to Stephen Scherer and his wife, Jacqueline. Um, after Sharon's parents divorced, though, her mother remarried and the family moved to Louisville. And there, Scherer attended fifth and sixth grades at St. Paul School, where she was on the cheerleading squad, the volleyball team, Ooh. and the softball team. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. Very so she sounds like well-rounded. She sounds like every parent's dream. Right, exactly. <laughs> so when her mother got divorced again for the second time, mm. her family moved in June of 1991 to Indiana, and Shonda enrolled at Hazelwood Middle School, and Shonda was 12 years old at the time. Okay. Okay. So that's where we are. Shonda's 12. She's involved. She seems like a really sweet kid, right? Yeah. So before we get started talking about what happened to Shonda... Um, I want to introduce you to the other girls who were involved in or responsible for this tragedy. So, not only is this the story 
of sweet Shonda Sharer, but this is also the story of the torture and the murder of Shonda Sharer. Right. The sweet 12-year-old girl. Oh my god, okay. Buckle up. Here we go. So the first girl that was involved in the torture and the murder of Shonda Sharer, her name was Melinda Loveless. So Um, That says a lot. (laughs) Usually I hate giving away a lot of details at the beginning about who did it, but in order for us to understand, like, the entirety of this, you have to know the whole story. So, Melinda Loveless. Mm, already don't Let like me her. tell you. Yeah. <laughs> Let me tell you about how she grew up. Okay. She was the youngest of three daughters, and her father's name was Larry. Of he course. was, yeah, Larry Loveless. Wow. Doesn't that sound like a modern Horn name? name. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> It kind of does, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Modern day Romeo, porn name. Yeah. They both work. Choose. <laughs> Dear listener, pick whatever you like about that one. <laughs> Actually, yours might go a little bit better with his personality. Okay. Oh, oh, wow. Yes. Okay. Yes. So he was drafted into the U.S. Army during the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. and he was completely treated as a hero when he returned. Um, his wife, Marjorie, which was Melinda's mother, she later described him as a sexual deviant who would wear her and her daughter's underwear and makeup. Ew. Okay. This reminds me of that case where that guy, he was in the police department. He was, like, breaking into women's houses and wearing their panties and, like, taking pics yes. of himself in them. Like, yes. let me tell you something. If I ever found out that Brandon was wearing my panties or my kids' panties... I mean, I don't know what I would do. Probably, like, pull a Lorena Bobbitt. Cut your dick off and run away. Yeah, throw it in the bushes. (laughs) Far away from the road. That's a hard line in the sand for me. Yeah, yeah. That's a no. First of all, you're going to stretch out my Victoria's Secrets. Second of all, don't touch my makeup. That's expensive. Maybe not so much stretch them out in my case, but, like, I mean, yes, stretch them out in my case, but, like, Brandon would have holes in every single pair of underwear we owned. He wore their underwear and makeup. He was incapable of staying monogamous. And he had a mixture of jealousy and fascination with seeing Marjorie, his wife, have sex with other men and women. Okay. I mean, wow. What the fuck? To each their own, but... No. Fuck that. Super (laughs) weird. Fuck that. I mean, I don't know. I'm not gonna judge if Marjorie was into it, but it sounds like she wasn't. So, <laughs> that's so Larry. Sad. More about Mr. Loveless. He worked irregularly mm. for the Southern Railway. Mm-hmm. Irregularly is the key word here. Um, after he got out of the military, he was working for the railroad, um, and his profession allowed him to kind of work whenever was most convenient for him. So he was able to like pick up shifts when he oh, wanted okay. and when he didn't want to. Mm. So in 1965, Larry became a probation officer with the new Albany Police Department, but he was fired after eight months when he and his partner assaulted an African-American man whom Larry accused of sleeping with his wife. Oh my God. Okay. <clears throat> So it sounds like he's trying to get people to sleep with his wife, and then after that he is beating them up. Cool, Larry. Or something like that. What a piece of shit. (laughs) Right. So get this. In 1988, Larry briefly worked as a mail carrier, but quit after three months, and he did very little work, having brought most of the mail to his house to destroy it. Oh my god. <laughs> this what is so is weird to me. With him? <laughs> he would go like pick up his big sack of mail and bring it home <laughs> to the house and fucking burn it. What or like shred it or something. What a total psycho, okay? Oh my god. What and is they don't wrong even say him? it doesn't even say he got fired. It says that he just quit. After a while, I guess Isn't he that just... a federal offense? <laughs> yes! <laughs> yes, it absolutely is. Yes, destroying other people's mail. Yes. Well, Larry sounds like a gem. I'm so happy to have met him. <laughs> yes. So this is... Keep in mind, this is Melinda's dad, okay? Yes. So he usually did not even share his income with his family, and any money that he did earn... Yes, I see your face. Any money that he did earn, he was impulsively spending on himself, especially on firearms, motorcycles, and cars. Oh, I thought you were going to say new panties. 
<laughs> Let me tell you, this man reminds me of my sister's ex-husband. <laughs> so okay. basically a piece of shit. Yeah, rolled around in more shit. And Ooh. so he filed for bankruptcy in 1980. Of course um, he did. His extended family members often described the loveless daughters as visiting their homes hungry, and they were apparently <sighs> not getting food at home. So, well, that's sad. Yeah. And the loveless parents would often visit bars in Louisville where Larry would like role play and pretend to be a doctor or a dentist. And he would introduce Marjorie, his wife, as his girlfriend. And then he would also share her with some of his friends from work, which she found disgusting. So, but she did it. She did it, but she was not into it. She hated it. Oh my God. No. Mm-mm. Okay. Yeah, he would have been dead. If it were up to me, but whatever. Right. Moving on. He's yeah. Gross. So during an orgy with another couple at their house, Marjorie tried to commit suicide. Oh my God. Poor Marge. Right. Which this was an act that she would repeat several times throughout her daughter's childhood, which they would remember. Um, and when Melinda was nine years old, Larry had Marjorie gang raped in their house. <gasps> after which Marjorie tried to drown herself. So just oh whenever Melinda God. was just nine. Yes. Ugh. After that incident, Marjorie refused him sex for a month until he violently raped her as their daughters overheard the event through a closed door. Oh my God. That's like a really fucked up life. So traumatic. I mean, just hearing this and being around this all the time and you can't escape it. Um, and in the summer of 1986, after she would not let him go home with two other women that he met at a bar... Larry beat Marjorie so severely that she was hospitalized, and he was convicted of battery. Well, thank God somebody finally did something. Right? So the extent of his abuse on his daughters and other, you know, children is kind of unclear. Um, various court testimonies claimed that he fondled Melinda when she was an infant. Yeah. Um molested Marjorie's 13-year-old sister early in their marriage and molested the girl's cousin Teddy from age 10 to 14. Um, both of her older sisters said that they molested him, but Melinda did not ever admit that this happened to her. Oh, God. Okay. Yes. Can we just make so, it like a rule to not ever say fondled? Because, honestly, that word just makes me want to throw up. As it should. That's a really gross word. Huh. Or like, Very undesirable. Yeah. Undesirable word. Bad yes, connotation. Totally. Ew. So... Not only did Melinda say that she wasn't abused by him, but she did admit that she slept in bed with him until she was 14 when he abandoned their family. Totally normal. Mm-hmm. Yes. I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> in court, <laughs> Teddy, the cousin, described an incident in which Larry tied all three of his daughters in a garage and raped them in succession. However, none of the sisters ever confirmed that this happened. Oh, but my God. Larry was verbally abused to his daughter's and fired a handgun in his other daughter, Michelle's, direction when she was seven, intentionally missing her. Well, he sounds like a great dad, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, talk about, like, your traditional... Um, All-American dad, father disciplinarian. of the fucking year, yep. Yeah, just, you didn't load the dishwasher, I'm gonna shoot my gun at you. Yeah. So, Wow. Okay. Right. Yes. Whew. So he would also embarrass his children by finding their underwear and smelling it in front of other family members. Oh. Happy Thanksgiving. Ew. Oh, my God. Let me just say, my kids have a lot of accidents. So you're a brave <laughs> Don't want to motherfucker. Sniff anybody's underwear. <laughs> oh, my God. No. Yeah. Ew. Ew. Especially, can you imagine being so embarrassed? Like, your dad comes out of your room during Thanksgiving or Christmas and he's got your underwear and he just sniffs them in front I mean, of the whole like, family. What the fuck did the rest of their family say? Did nobody uh, think that that was weird? I mean, like, honestly, like, like, my family is really weird. But somebody would have been like, what the fuck? What's going on? Like, <laughs> Well, this isn't weird. This is like yeah, this creepy, is beyond... abusive, psycho shit. Right. Yeah. Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. He's nuts. But don't worry, they turned their ways. So, for two years, beginning when Melinda was five, the family was deeply involved in Graceland Baptist Church. Of course they were. 
Yes. So Larry and Marjorie both gave full confessions and they renounced drinking and swinging while they were members. Mm -hmm. Um, Larry actually became a Baptist preacher. Of course he did, girl. That's what you and, do. I know, right? And Marjorie became the school nurse, right? Remember how we were talking about just join the choir, all's forgiven. Yeah. Way so, to go, you guys. You really did it. You did the damn thing. You did it. And then later, the church actually arraigned for Melinda, the daughter, to be taken to a motel room with a 50-year-old man for a five-hour exorcism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds not fishy at all. Yeah, definitely. So Larry actually became a marriage counselor within the church. Oh, and did he? <laughs> he acquired a reputation for being too forward with women, and he eventually <gasps> attempted to rape one of them. Whoa, this came out of left field. Never thought I would hear that. <laughs> I mean, Whoa! <laughs> I Colored am shocked. me surprised. I am fucking shocked. Never did I think. Larry, this wonderful family man. How I mean, could he? My God. You know, ugh. They were pretty offended <laughs> that they got accused of this, so they left the church and returned to their former professions and drinking heavily. Of course. So, in November of 1990, just one year before meeting um, Shonda, Larry was caught spying on Melinda and a friend, his daughter and her friend, and mm -hmm. his wife Marjorie attacked him with a knife. Oh, God. Which, I mean, like, rightfully so. I would... I know. Go, girl. <laughs> yeah, like, honey, it is about fucking time. Quit all this self-pity and just attack him. Just kill him. Right. Yeah, so he was sent to the hospital after he tried to grab the knife from her. And then she attempted suicide again right after that, and her daughters had to call an ambulance. Um, so after this incident, they filed for divorce. Larry moved to Florida. Where, um, where all good things go. <laughs> oh, the craziest Florida. state in America. Seriously. He moved to Florida. Go yes. fucking figure. So Melinda was crushed at losing her father, surprisingly. Yeah. Um, wow. But he remarried, and he sent letters to her for a while, completely playing on her emotions, but eventually he severed all contact with her. So that's where we're at with Melinda. Okay. And she's <laughs> just like one piece of the puzzle? One piece. Oh, wow. All right. Yes. Here's the second piece. Her name is Mary Laureen Tackett, who they called Lori. Okay. Her mother was a fundamentalist Pentecostal Christian. Oh, here we go. Okay, so if you're not from the South or you don't know anything about the Pentecostal religion, um, they do have some pretty strict rules, but there's a difference in the Pentecostal religion and fundamentalist Pentecost re religion. Mm -hmm. It's like the difference between um, Mormons who accept polygamy and those who don't. Like the fundamentalists are like the hardcore ones that accept polygamy. Okay. So she's a hardcore Pentecostal. And her father was a factory worker with two felony convictions in the 1960s. I mean, honestly, you're just like introducing me to like these great families that I just want to sit around a table with and have a good meal. Yeah. And you know? who knows what else is going to pop up there. Yeah. Maybe some panties. <laughs> Lori claimed that she was molested at least twice as a child at ages 5 and 12, is oh, what she remembers. Oh, God. This is so horrible. I, ugh. Yes. Crimes and in, with children. And it's crime. usually family members or people that they know. So right. it doesn't say who molested Lori, but it just claims that she was molested. Hmm. And in 1989, her mother discovered that Lori was going to school and changing into jeans, which is oh. a big no-no. Girl, you are in trouble. Yes. So even in traditional Pentecostal religions, it is um, something that they really pride themselves on is that women always wear skirts. Yeah. So for a fundamentalist Pentecostal to find out that her daughter was wearing pants is a big deal. So mm -hmm. after a confrontation the night that she found out, her mother attempted to strangle her. <gasps> what? Excuse yes. me. Oh my god. Zero to one hundred, honey. Real you don't quick, wear pants. baby. Yeah. Don't do it. I mean so, my gosh. Social workers became involved and Lori's parents agreed to unannounced visits to ensure that child abuse was not occurring. 
So Lori and her mother came into constant, you know, conflict. And at one point, her mother went to uh, Hope Rippy's house, which is another girl that's involved. I'm going to tell you about in a minute. And she learned that Rippy's father had purchased a Ouija board for the girls. Oh, fun. So <laughs> uh, that's a big no-no for me. I'm like, <laughs> do not allow Ouija boards in the house. That is some bad shit. Okay. Like, that sounds so, like the mean girl's mom to me. You guys need a Ouija board? Anything? <laughs> yeah. So that's Hope's dad. Hope is another girl. So he's like, come on. Here you go. Ouija board for you guys. Summon up the... Um, the ghost of Christmas past. <laughs> And she demanded that the board be burnt and that Rippy's entire house be exercised. Okay, like, she sounds like she's making a lot of demands for someone with Lots no clout. Like. There's a lot of exorcisms in this story, I just realized. So, yeah. Yeah, lots of demands. <laughs> so, Lori became increasingly rebellious, as one does, after her 15th birthday, and she also became fascinated with the occult. So... She would often attempt to impress her friends by pretending to be possessed by a spirit called Deanna the Vampire. Ooh, that's what I also do to impress all my friends. It's, yeah, everybody's it was always very, impressed yeah. when, you're, um, when you're possessed. So very much. specific possession, Deanna the Vampire. Deanna. Hmm. Yeah. She sounds so, fun. Exactly. Lori began to engage in self-harm, especially after early 1991, when she began dating a girl who was also involved in self-harm practice. Oh gosh, that's so sad. Okay. Yes. So her parents discovered the self-mutilation and checked her into a mental hospital on March 19th, 1991, and she was just prescribed an antidepressant and then released. Okay. So two days later, with her girlfriend and Tony Lawrence, which is the other girl involved, so there's four... Lori cut her wrists deeply and had to be returned to the hospital just oh. two days later. I mean, like, so there's obviously, like, some deeply rooted issues, you know. Oh, yeah, for sure. Especially if they've just given her antidepressants and then releasing her. Like, come on. Right. No yeah. counseling or anything like that. Right, or no, so, like, why is this going on? Yeah. So after treatment of her wounds, she was admitted to the hospital psych ward and... She was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, which is a big one, and she confessed that she has been experiencing hallucinations since she was a young child. So maybe Deanna is real. (gasps) (laughs) Plot twist! It was Deanna. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, like, I'm not making fun of that of that disorder because I know people people I'm very close with that have the disorder. Um, Yeah. So I think that that is very sad. But in actuality, maybe Deanna was real to her. Yeah, so for people who don't know, borderline personality disorder is a mental disorder that's kind of characterized by really unstable moods, really high highs, really low lows, um, unstable and unpredictable behavior, and issues with relationships. Um, They also have lots of feelings of worthlessness, insecurity, impulsivity, and they're known for being pathological liars. So it's a really sad disorder that takes over people's lives if they don't get help like Lori. Yeah, and especially even if they don't receive the right kind of help. Correct. You know, especially back in the 90s, whenever mental health was still kind of stigmatized, we don't really know what type of treatment she was actually receiving for this because it's still not well understood right and you can't just throw an antidepressant at somebody with borderline personality disorder and call it a day that's not no it's a lifelong work of for someone with that right so she was discharged on april 12th which was like barely a month later and she dropped out of high school in september of 1991 Now, she ended up staying in that town in October of 1991 to live with various friends, and there she met our first girl, Melinda Lovelace, and the two became friends in late November. And then after that, she spent most of her time with Melinda. Okay? Okay. All right. Our next girl is Hope Anna Ripley, which was the other girl I brought up before. Mm -hmm. She had known Lori Tackett and Tony Lawrence, another girl, since childhood, although her parents saw Lori as a bad influence. So, as with the other girls, Hope began to self-harm at age 15. Okay. So I know this is a common practice in middle and young high school girls, too. Mm Self-harm as a form of dealing with emotional issues. Yeah. 
And so it's not that surprising to me that they were doing it, but it's also kind of just shows how... How big the problem really is. How big the problem is, but also how exposed they were to... Oh, that sort of... To mutilation Mm -hmm. and harm and that sort of coping mechanism. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So our last girl is Toni Lawrence, and she was close friends with Hope from childhood. And she was also abused by a relative at age nine, and she was raped by a teenage boy when she was 14. Oh, my gosh. And she went into counseling after the incident, but she didn't follow through. And after that, her way of dealing with it was that she just became really promiscuous and as she most began do. Yes, and she began to self-harm as well and she actually attempted full suicide in 8th grade. Oh my gosh, that poor girl. So this is the little gang of girls that I needed to introduce you to so that you could kind of understand the intricate weavings of this occurrence. Okay. So we have a bunch of girls who are very emotional, a lot of them unstable, a lot of them have history of abuse. And, you know, abuse from others and abuse of themselves. Okay. Right. And abuse of, like, close family members. Just very traumatic, tumultuous family lives. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Except for Shonda. You know, she her parents did go through a divorce, which is super traumatic, but no abuse on the level that these other girls experienced. Right. So now back to the story. In 1990, 14-year-old Melinda Loveless began dating another young girl named Amanda Heverin. After Lovelace's father left the family and her mother remarried, Lovelace started to behave erratically. She got into fights at school, she was complaining of depression, and she did end up receiving some professional counseling. Okay. Um, in March of 1991, Lovelace disclosed that she was a lesbian to her mother, who was initially really furious but eventually accepted it. The 90s. Yeah, I mean, you can't be upset with some with who somebody is. <laughs> exactly, which we're still trying to figure out as a right. country, but... Correct, yeah. You know. So, as the year progressed, however, Loveless' relationship with Heverin deteriorated. Okay. As most young relationships do. <laughs> right. Hot and heavy. Middle school. So, Heverin met Shonda Scherer early the fall semester at Hazelwood Junior High School when they got into a fight. Oh, God. However, they became friends while they were in detention for the altercation together. Wait, so they fight and and then they become friends, like the breakfast club? Yes. Okay. Exactly. They got into a fist fight at school, and they got put in detention together, and then they became friends. Okay. And then after that, they started to exchange romantic letters. Okay. And... Loveless immediately grew jealous of Heberin and Scherer's relationship. So in early October 1991, Heberin and Scherer attended a school dance together where Loveless found them and confronted them. And although Heberin and Loveless had never formally ended their relationship, Loveless started to date another older girl. Okay. So after Hebron and Shara attended a fall festival together in late October. Ooh, sounds like very Gilmore girlish. Loving the fall vibes. Yes. P.S. Oh my god, it's hotter than a junkie spoon outside. <laughs> oh my god, it's so fucking hot. Help. <laughs> Send help. It's disrespectful. Loveless began, after they attended this festival, Loveless began to discuss killing Shara, and she threatened her in public. Wait, so killing her? Cons- yes, killing her completely. Like, she started t- telling people that she wanted to kill her, and then she also threatened her in public. Multiple people saw. So concerned about all these effects of their daughter's relationship with Amanda Heverin, Shonda's parents arranged for her to be transferred to a Catholic school in late November. Hmm. So Heverin states that she gave letters that Loveless was sending her, which contained death threats towards Sharer to a youth prosecutor, but the youth prosecutor never did anything about it as far as anyone knew. What? Yeah. So Loveless oh was God. giving death threat letters to the girls, and then Amanda Heverin gave it to a prosecutor. We don't know what happened to them. Wow. I mean... Let me tell you something. Somebody ever would threaten my children, it would be over. 
We would be fighting. I'd be in the schoolyard, honey. <laughs> I know you would, girl. On the cold winter night of January 10th, 1992, Loveless enlisted three friends, Lori Tackett, who was 17 at the time, mm. Hope Rippy, who was 15, and Tony Lawrence, who was also 15, to help her take revenge on Shonda Scherer. Because her girlfriend didn't want her anymore? Mm-hmm. <sighs> okay. Middle school, honey. God, so many high emotions. I know. So the foursome drove to where Sharer was spending the weekend with her father and the girls, excluding Melinda Loveless, because she obviously knew that Shonda hated her and wouldn't get in a car with her, used the pretense that they were going to take Shearer to see Heverin as the excuse for their visit. That is fucked up. Yes. So Shearer told the girls to return after her dad was asleep, which they did. And the girls then took Sharer into their car and told her that they were going to drive her to the meeting place at the Witch's Castle. Excuse which is me? this yes, is this isolated and abandoned house that served as a local teen hangout. Oh, cool, yeah. Bring me straight there. I was so paranoid as a teenager, I would have been like, mm, can we just go to like a McDonald's or something like somewhere brightly lit? I'm glad that you brought that up. Because I'm going to bring it up again later. Um, but teens love spooky shit. You know, like, they get into weird stuff. They go in graveyards and they knock stuff over. Yeah. I love it. But I was also <laughs> super scared. <laughs> like, I was like, you guys want to watch The Notebook again? <laughs> Let's not go to the scary haunted house. Okay. So they all get in the car together. They're going to the witch's castle. Shonda thinks that they're going to meet her girlfriend, Amanda. So in the back seat, though, Melinda Loveless was hiding under the blanket with a knife. <gasps> okay. Uh, chills. Yes. Oh, my God. I know. So Melinda, who will go on to be called the ringleader of these events, soon leapt out from under the blanket and threatened to slit Sharer's throat if she didn't confess to stealing Amanda away from her. Wait. Slit her throat if she... Did not confess, but what if she does confess? I can't imagine <laughs> that would be very good either. Right. So in tears and completely fearful for her life, Shara tried to respond, but to no avail. Obviously, if you're scared, like, it's hard right. to say words. Yeah. So Loveless then convinced the other girls to take Shara to a remote location where there would be no one around for miles. And the other three girls just assumed that Loveless was going to scare Share mm -hmm. into breaking up with Heverin, but they were dead wrong. Oh God, that is a that was mm, that was a play on words. That was not punny, but it was punny. Thank you. I got that from a source, um, not my own words, but <laughs> we'll, we'll post that on our website. So, for seven hours, seven hours, the girls brutally tortured Shonda Sharer before ultimately killing her. Seven hours? Seven hours. Oh my God, what did they do? So let me tell you what this involved. First, they took Shonda to a remote trash dump site near a logging road in a really densely forested area. And Loveless and Tackett stripped off Shara's clothes and proceeded to punch her repeatedly. And Loveless hit the victim's face with her knee until she bled profusely from her mouth. <sighs> yes. Meanwhile, Lawrence and Rippy stayed behind in Tackett's car. Okay, because that, that, that doesn't mean anything to me. Like, you're still complicit. Right, and those are the two younger 15-year-old girls, and mm -hmm. Lori is the 17-year-old with the car. Right. And Melinda and Lori are the ones who are, you know, facilitating most of this. Right. But that torture was not enough to satiate the older girls. They then tried to slit Sharer's throat, but the knife was too dull. Oh. oh my god. Yeah, so instead, they stabbed her in the chest, and they strangled her with a rope before throwing her in the trunk of the car, thinking that she was dead. Oh my god. Yes. Then they all piled back up in the car and went to Lori Tackett's house to clean up and drink some sodas. Um... Yeah, hey you guys, we had a long night of murder. You guys want a Coke? 
Yeah, let's go get a big old Coke. But they realized when they got home that their victim, who was now screaming in the trunk, was still alive. Oh my god. Wait, whose house were they at? Lori's. Lori Tackett's. So when they heard Sharer screaming in the trunk, Tackett went out with a paring knife and stabbed her several more times, coming back a few minutes later, covered in blood. Oh my god. Yeah. At 2.30 a.m., Lawrence and Rippy stayed behind, the two younger ones, as Tackett and Loveless drove to the nearby town of Canaan. Shara continued to make crying and gurgling noises, so Tackett stopped the car. When they opened the trunk, Shara sat up, covered in blood. Okay, this girl's been stabbed in the chest. She's been strangled. She's been stabbed repeatedly with a paring knife. Okay. Almost had her throat slit. Yeah, attempted to have her throat slit. And she sits up in the car, covered with blood. Her eyes roll back in her head, but she was unable to speak or say anything. So Tackett beat her and sodomized her with a tire iron from the trunk until she was silent and then told Loveless to, quote, smell it. Ew, what the fuck? What? I'm sorry. What is happening? Yes. Like, my stomach feels sick. I feel sick. And remember that Tackett is not even the one who has any revenge... That's what I was about her. to say. This has nothing to even do with her. No. Not that that makes it any, like, you know, better for Melinda, but, I mean, like, what is this girl so pissed off about? I don't know. She's mad, though. She's real mad. So, Loveless and Tackett returned to the Tackett's house just before daybreak to clean up again and change clothes. So, Rippy asks her about Sharer, and Tackett laughingly describes the torture to Rippy. And the conversation woke up Tackett's mother, who yelled at her daughter for being out too late and bringing home the other girls. So Tackett agreed to take them home. So all the girls go outside and then they open the trunk to stare at Sharer. Oh my god. But Lawrence refused to look at her. Rippy, however, sprayed Sharer with Windex and taunted her, saying, You're not looking so hot now, are you? But she was dead. No, she wasn't dead yet. <gasps> what is wrong with these people? Yes, with these girls. So Lawrence refused to look in the trunk. She wouldn't look at her. But Rippy was still taunting her. Can you imagine getting sprayed with Windex in just like a paper cut? Much less... Oh my god, no. I can't imagine any of this. Like, how fucking horrible. Yes. So finally, in the early morning hours, the girls stopped at a gas station and bought a two-liter bottle of Pepsi which they quickly emptied outside and then refilled with gasoline. Oh, God, I know where this is going. Right. And again, driving to a remote location, the girls hauled their still-alive victim, now only able to whimper the word mommy out of the trunk. Oh, my God. Girl, I know. That, I feel sick. Yes. They wrapped her in a blanket, and they poured gasoline on her, and then they lit Shonda Sharer on fire and drove off. What the fuck? And just to be sure that their work was finished, Loveless had them return a few minutes later to pour some more gasoline on her, watch her continue to writhe in agony, and finally confirm that she was dead. Oh my god. I mean, Seven this is like... hours of torture. This is some sick shit. And I mean, these are supposed to be, like, kids. Like, mm-hmm. having sleepovers, laughing mm-hmm. at movies, and... I mean, eating too much junk food, not murdering one of their classmates. Right. Brutally torturing and murdering. So, it's insane. And even more disturbing. Do you remember when you brought up McDonald's a while ago? Yes. The four girls went and casually ate breakfast at McDonald's just after the killing. And the four girls laughed as they compared their sausage breakfast to Shonda Sharer's burnt corpse. I have no words. How's that for a well-lit area for you? Fuck you. Because (laughs) (laughs) I will never forget this. Oh, my God. Isn't that the most horrible thing you've ever heard? It is. They're eating breakfast and laughing about it. And you know I'm already terrified for my kids to go to school because kids are so fucking mean. And now 
my kids are going to stay with me forever, and we're just all going to learn together. Yeah, you let me know how that goes. It won't go well, but I'm fucking terrified now. It is terrifying. And this is in the 90s, remember? It's not even like, yeah. oh you know, we're God. here 20, 30 years later, and, the, you know, stuff like this is still, yeah. like, we're still afraid that stuff like this is going to happen. So later that morning, two hunters found her body and called the police. And that same day, the girls started talking. Melinda Loveless told Amanda Heverin, which was the girl they were fighting over, and another friend the whole story, but she made them promise to keep their mouths shut. Wait, Melinda told the girlfriend? Yes. I and what did the girlfriend say? Girlfriend. What did she say? It doesn't say. It just says that Melinda told her to keep her mouth shut about it. Yeah, because that always works so well. Exactly. But that night, Lawrence and Rippy, the other younger girls involved, went straight to the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office with their parents and spilled the whole story in some rambling statements. Good. I mean, yes. that's the least that they should have done. And they shouldn't have done it in the first place. Yes, exactly. So it wasn't even the other girls we had to worry about. It was the younger two involved. And by the next day, all four girls were in police custody. I feel like I've been holding my breath. Yeah, exactly. And that's why we have such a great account of what happened because the two younger girls spilled the beans. And all four girls were tried as adults and accepted plea bargains in order to avoid the death penalty. All of them? All of them. So Lawrence and Rippy, the younger, less involved in the torture and more forthcoming girls, they received lighter sentences with Lawrence getting 20 years and Rippy getting 50, which ended up getting shortened to 35 on appeal. Okay. So Lawrence was actually released in 2000 after serving nine years, while Rippy served 14 and got out in 2006. What? Yeah, and these women aren't even that old now. Because they were arrested when they were 15. Wow. That, like, literally just drains any hope I had for, like, the justice system. Because that is fucking sad. Someone lost their daughter. Mm -hmm. A life was lost. Yeah, and because you didn't tell anybody what was going on. Yeah. So, meanwhile, Tackett and Loveless both received 60-year sentences. Loveless, the one who was angry with Cher and the ringleader behind the murder, naturally received a longer sentence than the two younger girls. But it begs the question... Why would Lori take so much to the killing and earn herself a longer sentence as well? Like, why was she so obsessed with beating and torturing this girl as much as Melinda was, right? Yeah. So Lori actually went on Dr. Phil and shared her story. So if anybody wants to watch that, you can go find it. Check it out. We'll post the link. We'll try to post the link. Yeah, I think it's on YouTube, so we'll probably be able to find it easily. Um, So Lori Tackett said in one interview with Dr. Phil, she said, I didn't know Shonda at all. I didn't go into that evening knowing anything was going to happen. I didn't want anything to happen. I didn't. Peer pressure. That's all it was. It spiraled out of control way too fast. It's something that should have never happened. Okay. I've been peer pressured. I've been peer pressured (laughs) to smoke weed. I've been peer pressured to stay out past my curfew, to drink, to do things I probably shouldn't have done, but I have never, ever, ever been fucking peer pressured to murder somebody. Yeah, and then whenever she got out and beat Shonda with a tire iron and sodomized her, nobody brought that on. Melinda didn't tell her what to do. She was the one driving the car. She just stopped and got out and beat her. Because she's a sick fuck. Right. And she blames it on peer pressure. Don't buy it. I don't buy it. (laughs) So her mom was the fundamentalist Pentecostal woman. And her mom later said that her daughter had always believed that it was her destiny that she would murder someone in cold blood and spend the rest of her life in prison. What? Yeah. And they are also on Dr. Phil too. So her prediction was partly true. So while Tackett did have a hand in killing Shonda Sherer, she was released from prison in January 2018 disgusting a couple of years ago yes so 
Lori's motives aside, what would drive a 16-year-old Melinda Lovelace to mastermind such a brutal murder? Jealousy. I mean... So many high emotions. And Shonda Sher's mother, Jacqueline, actually said in a 2012 interview, quote, I had many times said, if you want to see as close to a person who has absolutely nothing inside of them, look into Melinda's eyes because there's nothing there. Wow. Yeah. That's powerful. intense. Yeah. It is. But in prison, it seems as though Loveless has found some measure of escape from the cycle of violence and abuse. Hmm. So an Indiana program called ICAN, or Indiana Canine Assistant Network, has been helping Loveless. And behind bars, she trains puppies to be assistant dogs for disabled people. That's very grand, but she's still a piece of shit. Yeah, so one of the dog breeders who supplies Indiana with pups is a burn victim, much like Shonda Shearer was. So the breeder of these dogs actually convinced Jacqueline, Shonda's mother, to watch a video of Melinda Lovelace grown up and see what she does in prison for the program. And this is what her mother said. Jacqueline said, I was really taken aback. I saw someone almost reborn. She was sincere. She was compassionate. I think the ICANN program allows her to have something in her life that she can show love back to, and there's never betrayal on either side. I mean, this I'm, woman. I'm for redemption, but I mean, like, I just don't believe that there's anything that somebody can go through, or there shouldn't be anything that somebody can go through to have to where they have to harm or have to hurt someone else. There's right. no excuse. Yeah, me. I mean and and that's why I wanted to tell you about her background and the father that she grew up with because that was a lot of the things that she talked about in court was her, you know, tumultuous upbringing and and a lot of that was definitely viewed and put under the microscope, but ultimately they knew you know, that it was Melinda's decision to torture and kill this girl. Right. Yes. And whenever I said this woman, I'm like the way that I can't believe that she has this capacity to kind of almost forgive this woman. I don't know if she's forgiven her, but I think it's amazing that this woman is looking at this person who murdered her daughter and is saying, you know, she really looks like she's turned around. She really looks like she's better than me. Sincere. She's obviously a, an amazing person. Yeah. So, Jacqueline did something remarkable after seeing her daughter's killer at work. She donated a puppy named Angel for Melinda Lovelace to train in prison. And the grieving mother said she did it to honor her daughter, who she still thinks about every day. Oh my god, my heart is just broken for her. Yeah, and a lot of people kind of gave her some flack about it. Like, they couldn't believe that she had done something like this. And her response was, quote, It's my choice to make. She's my child. If you don't let good things come from bad things, nothing gets better. And I know what my child would want. My child would want this. And I mean, kudos to her. But like I said, she is way better than I could ever be because, mm-mm, nope, it's a big no for me. But I mean, I think that that's amazing that somebody could be that um, compassionate and forgiving right. to their child's murderer. Yeah. After you know, all this time had passed and she's just trying to make something good from it. And something that's cool about this case is that all these people are still alive and there are tons of resources on the internet to look at interviews with them and to hear them talk about it. Um, like the Dr. Phil interview. And also I think there are even interviews with Melinda talking about what happened. Um, and there are lots of recent pictures, updated pictures, um, But Melinda did release a statement. She said that um, for her part, she feels as if Jacqueline is helping her to overcome her past. And she said, she helped me to heal, forgive, and grow, whether she wanted that or not. She did a good thing. I would thank her. I couldn't thank her enough. Angel's in good hands, and I'm doing it for Shonda. I'm doing it all for her. Wow. So, happy ending? Not really. But it seems like... Her mother at least got some good closure, hopefully. Yeah, I just can't. Oh, man, I don't know, gal. I can't get over this one. This was just really brutal. And there's so much information, like I said, 
Um, the Most of the sources that I used said that they got all their information from a book called Cruel Sacrifice by Aphrodite Jones. And um, a lot of the sources said that they got information from there and it's a super comprehensive book about this murder. So if you're interested in reading further about it or knowing more of the details or what was going on, we can definitely include the link for the Aphrodite Jones book, Cruel Sacrifice. They have made a lot of other stuff about it as far as like episodes on TV shows go. I'm Mm -hmm. sure that there are plenty of documentaries out there. Um, And then also the Dr. Phil episode too, which Lori gives her explanation about what happened. Lots of follow-ups on this one. Okay. So what would you think about that? That was, I mean, you win. That was definitely the most fucked up case we've ever done. And I am sick to my stomach. I'm sorry. But people needed to know. They definitely do need to know. Especially, I mean, you know, teenage girls can be so cruel. But I never in my mind thought that this could be, you know, like this is what it could be. Yeah, and that the cycle of abuse and trauma is so horrifying and yeah. that it reverberates through every aspect of your life. And oh. I think that's why it's important for us to tell these stories too that may seem super awful and and cringeworthy and terrible, but it's just to show the importance of breaking that cycle and also giving these victims a voice and a name. Yes. Absolutely. And sharing their story. Absolutely. So you'll be able to find all the pictures pertaining to this case, as well as some of the sources that I used, or all the sources that I used, and some extra information like the Aphrodite Jones book and the Dr. Phil interview. We're going to upload all that to our website, and we'll post the pictures on Instagram as well. All right, guys. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts at Gals and Gore, or find us on Spotify And if you visit our website, we'll have all of the links listed there. Um, Our website is www.galsandgore.wixsite.com slash podcast. You can email us there with any case that you would like to hear us talk about. You can subscribe to us and you can leave us a review. So please do that. We would really appreciate it. Definitely leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you're listening. Even if it's not a good one, we still want a review just so people know we exist. Yeah. Well, I hope I didn't ruin your entire weekend. Um, not entirely. (laughs) (laughs) Just a little bit of it. So, yeah, thanks for listening to another episode, guys. We are so excited to see you again next week, and we'll be back. Boy. Yes, queen. Do a dance. <gasps> na, 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 na. Go, girl. Hey, hey, hey. She's like, yeah, let's whatever. see if we can do this. <laughs>